Welcome to ACFM. I'm Nadia Idol, and today joining me for a chat about all things technology is the award-winning finance journalist and writer, Katrine Marcel. Katrine's first book, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, has been translated into more than 20 languages. But it's your latest book, The Mother of Invention, How Good Ideas Get Ignored in an Economy Built for Men, which we will be focusing on today. Katrine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so I thoroughly enjoyed this fun, fact-filled, illuminating book, and it tackles everything from cars to sewing through to computers. But before going into some of those subjects and talking about technology and the different effects those have had on the world, but also on women and how they came about, I'd first like to ask you what drove you to write a book about technology? I guess it was my mother, actually, who, when she got pregnant with me, I am Swedish. So this was in Sweden in the early 80s. She decided that she wanted a more stable career. She had worked at an art gallery a bit and then with the administration of library catalogues. So she decided to do something which was still a natural thing to do for somebody with her background. She went and studied computer science and became a computer programmer. So in that sense, I did grow up in the tech industry, but it was, of course, quite different because computer programming was still quite female dominated it's shifted in the 80s but I still remember most of my mother's managers being women and then obviously I saw all of this change and when my mother retired a few years back it was a completely different industry and computer programming had gone from female dominated the first programmers having been women uh, women having invented software and all of these things to being very male dominated and a lot of things had happened with the status and the pay as well. More men, better pay, higher status. And as somebody who wrote, wrote about economics and money and these sort of things, it was something that fascinated me. So this connection between gender and pay and what gets defined as technology and not. And that is a big theme of, of this book, Mother of Invention. That's fascinating. So it actually the impetus was something that you experienced in your life with your own mother and sort of her her journey almost in the different in employment yourself. So that, that's that's really interesting. That's great to, to have started because you never know when you ask people where they why they wrote a book. Because sometimes no. people come up with all sorts of different things. So it's great, it's great to hear the story directly from um from you. So I mean. Oh, there's several ways that we can start having this discussion. There's so much in the book I want to, to ask about. But maybe let's start with, the, you know, the big proposal that is the pitch on the back of the book. Why did it take 5,000 years to put a wheel on a suitcase? I was fascinated. I'm sure yeah. our listeners would want to hear that story as well. Yeah, it is fascinating. It's sort of, it's a sort of classic mystery of innovation, often in economics. So it's been talked about for a long time. Because obviously the wheel was invented 5,000 years ago or something. And then we've applied the technology of the wheel to a lot of things, cars and carriages and bicycles and Ferris wheels and whatnot. 
And but there's a you know a very famous exception to this rule that whenever we have to transport something heavy from point A to point B, we tend to make this easier using the technology of the wheel. And that exception is the suitcase because the first commercially successful patent for a suitcase with wheels was first in, came in 1972, and suitcases with wheels were not common until sort of late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, so it did take 5,000 years to put wheels on suitcases. And this is something that many economists or management thinkers on innovation have been pointing out, this paradox, you know, how come that we put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases? Um, and they have not really had a good explanation to this. Uh, and I I found <laughs> the real reason to, to why this was the case. And it has to do with, with gender and gender bias. Because there was this idea that no man would ever roll a suitcase. It was considered unmanly. Masculinity is this thing that always has to be proven, right? And one way that men were expected to prove that they were real men was by carrying heavy things. So the industry assumed that wheels, would, wheels on suitcases would never sell because they thought of their consumers as almost exclusively men. Women were not assumed to, to travel very much. And if a woman traveled, she would not do it alone. Um, and these ideas about, you know, this gender bias was, was actually the main reason to why the industry didn't see the potential of this product. There were products before 1972 applying the technology of the wheel to the suitcase, but they were all niche products for women. And nobody really took them seriously or saw them as something to invest in or something that would then eventually go on and disrupt the whole global luggage industry, which is what happened. And then the, the suitcase with wheels took off in the 80s, obviously when we had in many parts of the world big changes on the labor market with a lot of women moving from um, informal to formal formal labor and and women you know starting to go on business trips to a larger extent hence traveling alone and they were the first sort of adopters of this suitcase with wheels and eventually the men followed and and now I think most people probably will say that a suitcase with wheels is more associated with a businessman right than a woman so it, it has really changed and and one of the fascinating things that you bring up in relation to that is how over history, there are points where you look back at something and it looks just completely strange and mental. Like, how could you not put wheels <laughs> in a suitcase? But at the time, you, you exist within this framework and this discourse and, you know, a set of ideological practices that make it completely sensical that putting a, a, a wheel on a suitcase is ridiculous. And I, and I found that fascinating as an idea because I then thought, well, how many things have not been invented or have been reinvented, or have you know started and stopped and started and stopped. I, mean, I was thinking about my, my my first suitcase, which definitely had the wheels on the short end, which I thought, oh, this is very strange. Like I was dragging it the long way round, yeah. um, and, it, and it doesn't seem to make sense that I'm now thinking back at it. But but of course, it made it made sense at the time that you wouldn't put wheels on a suitcase. So another thing that you talk about, which is another fantastic example, is which I knew nothing about, was the electric car, which I assumed was a recent invention, but it's not. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, electric cars are very old. Um, so here in London, in the late 1800s, you could phone up an electric taxi company and they would come and pick you up. 
um, if you had the money, obviously. But um, so they were around. This technology was around at the dawn of the automobile era, and then they disappeared. And what I focus on in the book is the fact that electric cars were quite heavily marketed to women, to wealthy women, um, because there was this assumption that a car that was more comfortable, which the electric was, much less dangerous, quiet, um, safer, um, bit slower, was a feminine car. So it was for women. And the the ads for electric cars from this period are amazing. There's these sort of, you know, women in long skirts and big hats getting into these vehicles that because they were associated with femininity, were almost not even seen as cars. They were almost seen as these drawing rooms on wheels, sort of like an extension of the feminine sphere of the home, but rolling around the city center. Right. Um, so... Um, I talk about this in the book because this is was something that contributed to electric cars then disappearing and us building a whole world for petrol-driven technology, which we now regret for obvious reasons. Um, but because these electric cars were seen as feminine, many male consumers ended up not wanting it because we have this idea if something is is seen as you know for for women or for girls it's is less than it's inferior to what's for men and this became a commercial problem sort of by 1916 or something like that particularly on the american market the electric car industry was complaining about how their product was seen as this thing for for the elderly and the women and not cutting edge technology of the future so this wasn't the main reason to why electric cars disappeared but it was it certainly contributed and you know i talk about that as as a form of sexism and gender bias that prevented us from seeing the potential of electric car technology we could have done that 100 years earlier and we probably would have been in much less trouble at the moment and is that because you talk a little bit about this but is it because alongside the invention of you know the electric car there was also the invention of the motor car and how the motor car developed and i think you talk about it a bit and how you know that the the, the danger of having you know the motor explode in your face and having to crank yeah. it up from the, and the oil and the gas i mean is it is it are you kind of this is the suggestion that because of industry and work and mechanization and all of the you know and work being you know the male domain that effectively the kind of the natural or it was viewed to be the natural progression from that was technologies that were built down that aesthetic and that the electric car actually sat outside that so for men which were the main, you know, consumers in this case, um, it, it was difficult to market that kind of shift? Or is it difficult to trace this sort of stuff and we can just observe it? No, I do, I do think, I mean, I certainly think that the electric car industry, they made a mistake in a way marketing so heavily to women because most families could only afford one car i mean the car the automobile also went from like a real luxury product to something for you know wider um part of the population and then the this idea to have you know one fancy electric for the lady of the house and uh, a smelly petrol driven car for for the man 
that didn't work for most families and then they went with the petrol um, choice. But I think what's interesting is that a lot of innovations that were done for the electric car and for women were then integrated into the petrol driven car. So electric cars were the first ones to, you know, that you could start from the driver's seat without having to crank the, the, the motor going, which was, as you mentioned, very dangerous. So and that was something that was then, you know, we had the electric starter that was integrated into petrol driven technology and was first seen as this feminine thing that no man really needed. But eventually that became part of it. Roofs, electric cars were the first ones to be made with roofs because men were, were not allowed to kind of uh, demand or want <laughs> cover from the rain because that's that again was unmanly. But electric cars, because they were for women and product developed with women in mind, they had the first roofs. So, so there's also this real kind of, you know, innovation done with women in mind is then integrated into a product that we think of as male. And it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting process, I think. I mean, it's, it just seems fascinating just even trying to imagine being in the room where they're making it, having a discussion about uh, putting a roof on the car. I mean, surely there must have been someone who, want, who at least wanted to say, this sounds like a logical thing. But I guess what you're saying is from the observation of it, again, it was something that very quickly was, was associated with the feminine. Yeah. And it took a long time for petrol driven cars to actually have roofs as standard. I think that we're talking 1920. So which doesn't quite make sense. Um, and I think but I think you're touching on something very interesting, because I think today in the era we live in today, the you know, the form of capitalism we live in, we think of technology as this really rational, neutral force uh, that is pushing everything else in front of itself. And all we can do is, is adapt as societies, as humans, to whatever these geniuses in Silicon Valley invent. And then if that requires us to change everything about our labor markets, our lives, or, you know, that's just what we have to do because the forces of technology are so powerful and, and rational and brilliant but if you look at, for example, what I do in the book, Mother Invention, is you know just look at you know how gender bias, for example, affects innovation. It just immediately shows you that this whole narrative of technology as this neutral, brilliant, rational force is is not true. It's sort of you know we make the machines and we uh, we buy the machines and we create the machines and we build them and we come into all of these things shaped by all of the things that shape shapes us. And one of them, which I focus on is, is gender bias. So I think, I mean, that's what I wanted with the book. It's, you know, it's obviously show all of these examples of gender bias holding innovation back, but also fundamentally make people think about technology in a different way. And I mean, there must, it must be that some of it is due to chance as well, like a conversation that did happen or didn't happen or patents that, you know, never got through. There must be all of these little quirks. Yeah. I and mean, I found that I found some of the examples really fascinating. I mean, the 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 big argument that really struck me that you were making on the well, just in the which encapsulated the relationship, I guess, between technology and gender bias was this this idea that there are different aspects to, you know, te technology in the widest sense. And maybe we should define that in a, in, in a second, but in the sense that there's all of these different sort of aspects of, of, of human innovation and creativity. And when society, which is you know, dominated by patriarchy, decides that one is 
it doesn't like one or it's threatened by it, I think threatened is a word that you that you use, then it sidelines it, marginalizes it and call, calls it feminine. And I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it when in fact, in fact a lot of these things that society has deemed as feminine are in fact just part of human. Yeah. that are human needs. And I thought that was an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, on a really deep level, the way I see it, sort of that is what, what patriarchy fundamentally does. It sort of takes the human experience and divides it into, you know, genders it in certain ways and says, you know, what we think of as, as male, particularly at this moment of time, is, is, is superior to what we think of as feminine in this moment of time. And it denies both men and women and all genders, you know, the full extent of what it means to be human. So that's on a kind of existential level. I think that's what it does to, to all genders, really, the system. But obviously, if you think of just something as, as innovation, because it, it, it does these things, that, oh, that's feminine, so therefore it's not technology, because it can't be, um, really limits our potential to to innovate and solve problems in things that in ways that are very, very damaging, I think. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fascinating. Um, okay, let's let's move on to maybe talking about what has been historically viewed as a technology and what hasn't. And I one of the things that you bring up is talking about sewing and soft and hard materials and this milk but not cement maybe you can talk a little bit about those distinctions and how they fit into categories yes so I guess that's a big argument of the book is that you know we look back at the history of innovation and it looks as if everything important ever was invented by by men by white men and and that's obviously not true and the explanation that I give to the exclusion of, of women from that narrative is that whenever women innovate or create technologies, in spite of all the barriers set up, you know, formal barriers for women to do this, everything from you know not access to that type of education to you know patents to to uh, finance, all of these things. But even when women invent and create technologies, which women have always done, we think of these as not being technology. So we talk about the, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Stone Age. And as his, some historians have pointed out, you know, we why don't we talk about the Ceramic Age, for example? Of course, ceramic is technology. It's very, very important technology. A lot of that was developed by women for thousands of years. Uh, same with, with cloth, weaving, all of that. Very, very important technology for a society. Women, because of the economic role that women had historically, were developing a lot of that. That doesn't get to define a whole era. Um, you know, why do we talk about the Stone Age and not the String Age? You know, string is an invention from that period that they think was was invented by women. You could argue that string is is as important as a club made from from stone. You know, if you have rope or string, you can tie things together. You can make fishing fishing nets and and so on. But almost all the time when women invent something and women invented software when when my mother went into programming that wasn't considered to be technical it wasn't considered to be tech uh, and therefore women were allowed in and then it shifted and we started to see it as technology it became the status increased the pay increased the women were pushed out and that story happens again and again and again that whatever women do it's not allowed to be seen as as technology 
So what's the, if we can just pick up on that point. So what's the causality here? <laughs> Is it because we've got two, we've got two, there's, there's kind of two scenarios. There's the scenario where women invent things and they don't, they might be acknowledged or not acknowledged, but it doesn't fit into the greater narrative. Like there never is an age associated with it. Okay, so that's that's one thing. But there's the other thing where it, it, it's by the by, whether a man or a woman invents or, you know, whether it's both of them inventing or this certain t- technology. But the economics here is really interesting yes. of how of how some things then, uh, is, is it because they start to become profitable under capitalism? And where, do you have any insights into whether that same trend and causality took place in a kind of pre-capitalist yeah. era, perhaps? That would be really interesting. Thing yeah, to well, about. to be perfectly honest, this is something that I am sort of, uh, it's a part of, of the book, and I look particularly at, at programmers in Mother Invention, but this these really important and tricky questions that you're asking me right now is actually something I'm trying to explore right now for my next book because I am very curious about it myself and it's not very studied. So I'm I'm not sure I know yet what I think about this, but, and I think, I mean, so I look at programmers specifically, what happened and how sort of status follows masculinity in the economy. I mean, we have that in a lot of professions women now have gone into biology as a as a field and what happens to to pay um, in biology or for biologists it goes down so it, it very it happens a lot this this mechanism and it's not very studied and i think a lot of people you know when we see these figures we think you know what it, exactly what you're asking what is the causality you know, what happens first how does this mechanism actually work and i'm not sure i can answer it yet maybe I can in a few years time but I think when it comes to programmers I mean I I look at that in mother invention and it seems to be quite complex in some countries like in the UK it was a real almost a conscious or it was a conscious project from from the public sector from the state when they realized that these new machines uh, were becoming very important um, for society they looked at the people that knew things about programming or were doing programming and they were women of the wrong social class. Uh, and the British state actually had a, a an official program to get more men of the right social background interested in computing so that these men could then go on and become head of computing at the Bank of England. Uh, and they, you know, they invented invested taxpayers' money into this program. So that's that's a very <laughs> sort of open, you know, we have the wrong people here. You know, we we see that this is becoming more important. We need the right, we need men of the right social class to to um um be involved in this process. To be involved in this exactly. yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. Um but that wasn't the case in, in all countries. I mean some were more subtle. I mean in the US this you know you often talk about um you had a lot of female and also a lot of women of color, you know, in quite well-paid jobs in, I guess, what we today would call sort of, you know, software developing developers and so on. And then it shifts. And a lot of people point to that suddenly they started recruiting using personality tests. So before that, you were just looking at what people could do. But then when you start recruiting using a personality test, where the assumptions, you suddenly have assumptions about what kind of person will be successful at this job and those assumptions are often based on studies on men 
And what happened was that suddenly women were not getting these positions anymore. So I do think it's, it is quite complex how this works and it's not the same in every country. And there are countries in the world where you still have many more women still in computing. So it's, I think we need to look at this more. And I, I, I try to give some explanations, particularly for, for, for what happened to computer programming. And, and also because we've forgotten about it. I think we, we treat it as if women were never in tech while women actually invented software. And today, and obviously, let's under- talk about that. Yeah, yeah, let's take a step back and talk about that because I thought you're going into this subject and I really want to explore it, which is, I think, the big, big hitter in the book, which is well, one, reading this bit, which you actually write very dramatically. And I was I was reading it like, you know, it was some exciting narrative story about girl years and kilo girls yeah. and the measurement of, of computer power, of computer yeah. pr- power in girl years yeah. and kilo girls, not kilo bites. Yeah. Um, let's start from the beginning on <laughs> that bit, because I think it's fascinating going all the way forward to the story about the guy in Google who said women are bad at coding. So yeah. maybe tell us tell us a bit about that story because I think you tell it really well in the book. Yeah, no, I mean, it was... So the first computers were people, right, who were doing computing, doing calculations. And this became a profession that was not very high status. So you had a lot of people of colour and you had a lot of women so sorry to interrupt you again. Can we can we build the picture? So these are women <laughs> sitting in rooms doing they're doing calculations they're doing over calculations. and over again. That's what yeah. they're doing basically. That's what they're okay. doing. Yeah, they're in human. rows on desks, sitting yeah, calculating stuff, calculating or categorizing or you know these sort of things. So they were human computers, and then during the Second World War, um, electronic computers were developed. So they were supposed to replace the girls who were literally in the basement doing these calculations. And now you had a machine in the other basement uh, being able to do these calculations. So in order to measure the productivity of these new machines, the measurement, the first measurement used of computer power was how many, if you're a company or an institution, if you're going to buy this big new electronic machine, how many girls will that replace? So how much girl power can be replaced by this computer power? And that is literally how they were talking about it, which is, is absolutely fascinating. It is, because the point that you make is that, uh, and you, you give this great example about the guy who was fired from Google because of this email that was caught going round, saying the thing that we know a lot of people think, which is, let's face it, women are bad at coding. Yeah. But in this specific example, it w- it's not just that, you know, it's not true. And that's a sexist thing to say. It's that society had actually deemed this feminine work. Yes. So it was it was almost sexist in the other way around. It wasn't expected. This is something that men could do. But I guess my question there was, is it because the quality of the work and like we said, these are girls sitting in basements doing calculations, you know, some sort. I guess a was it a glorified or even less glorified secretarial work? Yeah. It, yes. Less. It was it was something that was deemed, um, you know, it was a job you could you could easily, quite easily get. I mean, some of them were doing incredibly complicated things. But, but they were sitting down. There was no action. There was no banter. 
So yeah, presumably yeah. that's why they thought men couldn't do it. I'm trying to figure out what's the thing. No, the men often didn't want the didn't the, the want work. it. Yeah, I mean, you had certainly had a lot of in, in the US you had a lot of men of color doing these things. And uh, but it was it was deemed a suitable job for women. And it was all these ideas about women being meticulous, right? And good at following instructions. And that sort of even when women started, you know, programming real electronic computers, we, we still had that. Oh, are you good at cooking from a recipe? Uh, you will probably be a good programmer, which is something that actually makes sense in a way, because it is in a way the social. You mean in terms of like the socialized sense that you know women are controlled, women can control themselves, that sort of yeah, sense. and women cook food from down, recipes, can, is yeah, it, okay. you know, and that is is you know a, a recipe is a form of code, right? And you follow it and meticulously, and you end up with a great stew, right? It's a it's a bit similar actually to coding in a sense. I can see why they were comparing these things, but it's obviously interesting that they took something that was female coded, like cooking, and compared it to coding, and how we now you know, we think of it as, you know, in a very different way. Yeah. So I guess it's it's several factors that we're talking about at the same time. One is thinking, you know, this th- there's, there's some kind of invention that is being developed in society and, and somebody somewhere or a group of people are thinking either consciously or not consciously, is this women's work or is this men's work, you know, based on, you know, the gender roles at the time. But of course, then there are other factors, which is not this perceived innate sense of what is female and what is male which you know of course we'd argue with uh, through a feminist lens but also what pays well what doesn't pay well and where does this fit in terms of the economic development and when something and I think one of the things that you talk about is that this all changes when it becomes with Silicon Valley and and you you've got this story about why Silicon Valley is not in Buckinghamshire do you want to tell (laughs) us about about that no but that I mean so the first computer was in the was in Buckinghamshire, programmed by by women, and and there were a lot of women. So Britain really, you know, you could make the case that Britain should uh, have had um, developed something like Silicon Valley, or at least been further ahead with with uh, tech and computing than what ended up happening. Uh, and women were building computers in Britain. To I mean, even to the extent that. In, in, in parts of, of 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 the industry, or I mean, it was it was public sector when they when they had equal pay legislation, it was argued that it shouldn't apply to many parts of computing because there were actually no men there, right? So, and what I talk about in the book is is how things like Britain then deciding that these chain smoking um, working class women in, uh, <laughs> who were doing coding uh, could not be trusted to become head of computing at the Bank of England or go on. And I mean, they were pushed out of the industry. And who um, made the tea for these women? Just going back to the Adam Smith and who cooks his yeah, dinner, just as a small tangent. Who made, made the a... women's tea and brought them uh, cake and bought the cigarettes? That's what uh, Yeah, I, I think they did it themselves. I mean, I, I don't know, but I guess so. this was not high status work. It was yeah. it was just something that needed to be done. And then when it became high status work, you didn't take the people that already knew stuff about it. You had to bring in guys from, you know, Oxbridge to, um, of the right social class and, and get them interested in computing. And, and I guess what I talk about in the book is, you know, how did this 
I mean, this was it was a waste, wasn't it? Uh, and and all these you had entrepreneurs like I mean, I interviewed for for uh, for the book. I mean, Dame Steve Shirley, for example, who set up. She, she saw this in the '60s how all these women who were who were really good at, at doing software were pushed out of the industry for lots of reasons, and she set up a company just hiring female programmers. And she made a lot of money on that. So she saw that opportunity, but but obviously because of, of sexism, other people didn't. Uh, so did this sort of contribute to Britain, you know, not being further ahead when it came to, to the sectors of the economy? I think it's worth discussing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to imagine that Buckinghamshire would be in a very different place if it had Silicon Valley. It mind. would, yeah, it would, yeah. <laughs> Maybe one example, one other last, one of the last big examples I want to talk about is um, uh, the relationship between bra technology and putting <laughs> people on the moon, which all happened before the suitcases had wheels. So, so um, maybe tell us a little bit about that and how it was um, the technology for women's clothing that effectively could um, make the spacesuits work and not make them metal, which of course was, I think you're saying where the, where the men, male designers went with those kind of hard fabrics. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a big problem or, or, or just solution. You know, you needed a solution to this problem. You know, we're going to space. What are we going to wear? A uh, human body is not very well. It's not at all uh, well adapted to survive in in space, and astronauts also need to move around, and and it's a complicated um, thing to solve. And there were a lot of companies who wanted this big contract with NASA, creating the spacesuits that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were going to wear uh, on the moon. And just as you say. A lot of the thinking was sort of traditional engineering thinking. Okay, we're going to put the human body in a place that's very dangerous for the human body, which means we need to put it in sort of some kind of hard armor. Which, of course, is what was done for centuries when yeah. you're in charge of, you know, a war operation or whatever. You yeah. You, yeah. you put the hardest possible materials. Yeah. So in a sense, it kind of made sense to a certain historical yeah. trajectory. Maybe or maybe not. Carry on, sorry. No, and th- but then... Innovation is, you know, when somebody has a different perspective and brings in a solution often from a different world, right? And this is what happened here because you had this company who was specialized in female underwear production, uh, which meant they had, so they had this consumer brand of female underwear called Playtex, which was at the time in the US you know, synonymous with a certain type of female shapewear, I guess we would say today, in the same way that a brand as Spanx or Skims would be today. Um, But they also had a military division because during the Second World War, when they were cut off from rubber supply, and a lot of these sort of shapewear of the time were made from rubber, they, in order to survive, they had to, to, to work for the US military. And they kept this military division they had been you know doing things for the air force um and they had an, a different idea they wanted this contract too uh and they wanted to make the moon suits from soft materials and their suit their prototype was hand sewn by female seamstresses literally moved from bra production to spacesuit production and this suit was the only one that passed uh, the tests that nasa put up you know, for uh, and reluctantly after, I mean, it's kind of a long story, but reluctantly NASA gives this contract to this 
company and these suits, you know, these famous suits. I mean, we all know what they look like, these sort of white sort of soft things that that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin ended up wearing. They were made by these female seamstresses. And my point in the book is that, of course, that was technology. This was a... and this was quite an, an, a very innovative company where, I mean, the engineers were male, the seamstresses were female, but the male engineers, they had to take sewing lessons for months in order to understand the technical processes. Uh, and there was this real exchange of, of ideas and uh, skills, which which ended up making this, this invention successful and took us to the moon. And I think it's fascinating how how we don't think of sewing or or brass as as technology. And I think one of the the fascinating things that you talk about there in in that exchange between like the technicians and the seamstresses is is the very kind of specific knowledge around how you do stitching and where, you know, there would be give and where there wouldn't be and where you'd get stretched and how you can minimize the amount of air yeah. going in, in all these things that of course when you think about space travel it makes complete sense yeah. and and I've got this image in my head of, of those conversations of you know the technicians going oh yeah wow okay we've not thought about that but yeah. of course people making things like bras and corsets and you know those would be thinking about that sort of stuff so that's a lovely kind of crossover story isn't it between and there must be more of that yeah. about how stuff like post-world war where there are a lot of women working in certain in certain, you know, technological areas where they didn't before. Yes, there must have been. I mean, I love this story too. And I also, I mean, the bit, the bit I, I like the most, I think, which is the funniest about, about that particular story is how, how the seamstresses, they had all the skills, the technical skills. And then NASA wanted technical drawings because that was the language that they understood. And the seamstresses didn't have time <laughs> to produce any technical drawings and didn't see the point of them because they were not, that's not how they were thinking. That's not how they were taught, which freaked NASA out. And then in the end, this company, they had to hire a separate team of male engineers whose only job was to translate what the seamstresses had already done to technical drawings that were never used in the production process. They were just But it there. made them feel, feel yeah. calmer that it yeah. was it was within their framework that's fascinating yeah so it's uh and, and you're right I haven't thought of it that way it must there must be more things like this uh that collaboration between yeah. kind of two worlds of, of thinking but I think what you've just said there is 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 really the point the fact that if you're creating an item in 3d that has to be pliable Unless you had a three, I mean, maybe if they had a 3D printer, that would be the solution. That's how you would draw the maquette, so to speak. Yeah, um, yeah. But if they expected it to be a 2D drawing, that that again must have been a fascinating conversation where somebody's pulling their hair out going, we can't do this without the drawing. Yeah, and yeah. the seamstress is going, yeah, but you just need to do it. Like, yeah, I'll exactly. show you. And no, 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 we need to put it on a piece of paper. <laughs> That's yeah. great. I love that idea. Um Let's move on to something that we're really interested on on ACFM. We might do an entire show on, which is automation and what you can and should automate and what you shouldn't. And that's it's a topic that we think about a lot. Um, and one argument that you make, which um, which I really love, is talking about the things that you can automate and the things that you can't. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about automate and why you can't automate cleaning. <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't say 
can't. I mean, who knows, right? You know, God invented uh, economists to make astrologers seem credible. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the future? Uh, it seems harder, right, to um, to automate something, or it is harder to automate something uh, like cleaning a house. Uh, and there was this real assumption that, I guess what I talk about in the book is, is assumptions about that if we could crack something like chess, you know, if we can create a computer that can beat Gary Kasparov at chess, then we will have created a type of intelligence or something that can solve almost all, all other problems as well. Um, and that obviously ended up not happening because, you know, computers beat humans at the best humans at chess a very long time ago. And we still don't have uh, cleaning robots that really work very well. And what I talk about in the book is, is that there is this, there are a lot of assumptions around what's intelligence. There are a lot of assumptions about skills on the labor market and what's a tricky problem. Like, obviously we thought, oh, you know, making some creating a machine that can do chess or complicated calculations is obviously harder than creating a machine that can wait at a restaurant or clean a house because that's how we think of status right on the labor market and the people developing a lot of this technology and thinking about it within the universities were you know white men who thought of intelligence as oh you're intelligent if you can solve complicated mathematical problems and are good at chess um, but that's not, you know, that type of intelligence is, is great, but there's a lot of other types of intelligence that is needed to have an economy uh, work. And, you know, we're stuck now in a, in a, in a situation where, where certain things are much easier to, to automate and other things much, much harder. And we might crack those problems in the future, but since this is the case, you know, then what consequences will that have on the on the labor market? You know, can you see a world where where cleaning becomes high status? Uh, I love that point. I absolutely loved it. I mean, the thing that struck me when I read that bit was when you're cleaning a house, you're effectively you're cleaning after people, yeah. and people, as you point out in the book, are unpredictable. So yes. people will do things like knock over a glass of water. And if you knock over a glass of water, unless you've never cleaned up a spill before, after anyone, which maybe a lot of inventors have, but definitely most women mm. or most people who live, you know, in a house, you know, many men as well. If you're, if that, that action of trying to automate that's when I really understood it when you brought that up in the book. When if you try to automate the action of cleaning up a spilt cup of tea, it automatically makes me understand why that's way more difficult to do than beat an expert at chess. It is, it is because it's you know you're not you have the tea and it's it's 
spilled over certain furniture and you need to sort of rub it with different things depending on what material it's spilled over and you have to know how hard you're going to rub you know in order to get the tea out but not ruin the material and all of those things just like in we take that for granted we have a lot of that knowledge a lot of that intelligence literally in our bodies in our hands but but to make a machine do that is is incredibly it's a tricky. huge amount of information like huge it's a amount huge of information. information you have to put in about how hot the the beverage was yes. <laughs> like what it spilled on has it spilled on a human is someone screaming is someone in danger <laughs> yeah. is this an okay situation what else is happening in the vicinity like is the baby crying yeah is it yeah. you know is this is this falling on an electrical s- socket yes. like when i sat and i thought about it i thought that's a huge amount of information in terms of probability that you would have to put in, which would probably take a, even a really fast computer some time to too long, <laughs> too and the tea's already seeped in, you know, and and the baby's crying and everyone's on fire by the time the computer makes. But maybe <laughs> you're right. Maybe we don't know. We're just looking at it from you know an early 21st century perspective, and maybe that stuff is is something you can automate. Yeah. But but, but we're yeah, far, it's, far it's, from it's it. And also a house, household is a very unpredictable environment. So it's it probably it's easier to create a self-cleaning house from, you know, from the get-go than create robots that can clean existing houses. So, I mean, robots and machines are very successful in environments that are built for them. And those environments are called factories. Um, but they're much less successful so far out in, in sort of the unpredictable human world. And, you know, we need to, if we're going to have to guess, which we do need to, I think, if we want to have a, a, you know, a good public policy response to automation and the risks of that and be able to manage that politically in a way that doesn't end up with, you know, lots of people being left behind or huge, you know, even larger inequalities in the economy. We need to have some kind of idea of, you know, what jobs are being automated and which ones are not. And then thinking about it in terms of of gender, which which I do, I think is we should do much more of that because if this is the case that robots are good at automating certain things and and quite bad at at automating things that have to do with unpredictable environments, relationships, and other humans, which people specialize in those type of professions in almost every economy of the world. That's women. You have women in care. You have women in, you know, cleaning, for example. You have women even in, in, in teaching, in, you know, social work, in, in these things where machines, so far at least, are really unlikely to replace human labor. What does that mean? Does that mean that we will have a lot of unemployed men and we have to, you know, retrain them into care? I think I have a phrase in the book, you know, maybe we've focused too much on teaching girls to code and too little on teaching boys to care. Because it, you know, if this continues, there, you know, this is one of the areas where, you know, there will be increasing demand because of aging pop- populations. And also where humans will actually have a competitive advantage against machines. So there will be need for, for human labor in these in these fields. Yeah. And I think I think, yeah, I love that. And I think it really brings into perspective what it made me think about was it seems like what the vision that some people have 
you know, who are, you know, making these statements or talking about, you know, the second machine age discourse, which we'll talk about in a second, is that it's it's almost like their vision of the future doesn't involve any human beings or their mm. vision is one where human beings are as robotic as possible, which completely ignores the fact that that is that that's not what we are. Like, sure, you can codify and automate certain aspects of human life. But, you know, as you point out in the book, like all humans come out of another human being's uterus. Like you can't automate that. (laughs) Yeah, at least. Yeah, at least. Maybe maybe in the future, but not now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe in the future, but even even I like science fiction. Sorry, I just sure no, that's complete. That's completely fine, and a lot of our <laughs> listeners would. But but from where we're standing now, if we're talking about the human body as it exists now, like yeah. human bodies and and human brains, like move in the world in a certain way. So unless you're explicitly saying that, and I, I feel like I guess what I'm saying is it's not explicitly said by people who make the full automation argument. It's not explicitly said that a future with human beings who are in fact not human as we understand it now is where that vision of technology sits because otherwise you know we're still going to spill things and you know get hurt and 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 need to hug people you know what i mean that sort yeah, of stuff yeah. yeah yeah no i know and i and i think i think i say this in the book that actually if you look at it it's sort of we've been much less successful creating um, mach- uh, robots that can do what humans can do than we think, uh, and and what we've instead tried to do a lot, and we call it tech and innovation, is we've created models where we treat human workers as if they were machines. You know, you look at you know how Amazon workers are expected to move around or I talk about care work in in the in in many economies where sort of care workers jobs are managed through mobile phone apps and divided into sort of almost as if these care workers were robots and they have to do this and this and this and this on certain times so we've created these business models um the whole gig economy is a lot about treating people as if they were robots um and that we've done quite successfully i mean i wouldn't say it's successful because it's uh, you know i think it's exploitation and, and very problematic but but that is that is nothing new sort of exploiting workers is sort of the oldest business business model in the world and we call it you know high tech um and it's not just because it's an it's run through an app yes which is a whole big thing, the gig economy and kind of where it's going to go next, which I think is a is a fascinating, maybe it's not your next book, but the book after that. Yeah, yeah, tackle, yeah. Tackle, that, tackle that question. Um, okay, so maybe let's just end on a couple of things um, related to what we've just been talking about, which is, I mean, we've talked about most of this, but maybe you have something else to add on why it's a problem likening humans to computers. We were just talking about this, but why is this a problem? Yes, I mean, it is. So we, I mean, I have a chapter on on this how we we have this this um, tendency to compare ourselves to the most advanced technology we can think of at the time. So you know, the Vikings used to think of you know human beings as being created through axe technology. The world. Um, was created through all sorts of mystical processes, but human beings were actually 
cut by Odin using an axe, which was, you know, high tech in in, in the in these uh, in that period. And then, you know, when technology moved, we we um, we started thinking of ourselves as 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 run like like clockwork, you know, me- this mechanical view of how humans worked, right? So we, and that was obviously when mechanical clocks were sort of the fanciest technological marvels of the time uh, and so on and and so on when the telephone exchange came you know immediately we started thinking of the human brain is is like a telephone exchange so we, we've always had these metaphors we, we we like using technological metaphors for ourselves and obviously today we think of the brain as a computer um and you know you could say that's a useful metaphor to some extent but it also does erase a, a lot of things for example the the human body and what it means to have a body and what that and means all the things that we were talking about yeah all the things we we're talking about a lot of the things that we code as female as well and 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 the relationship between bodies and how you know the work of bodies is what you know makes the economy and the world go around and 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 all of these things and and it's it hides a lot of exploitation it's 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 just not a very useful i think it's quite a problematic way of seeing ourselves um and i think it's useful to know that we've always almost always done that we like to use technological metaphors for 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 what it is to be a, a human being and um and it it doesn't make it accurate so katrin uh i you might want to give a final word on something else but maybe you can tell us a little bit about to end the contrasting visions of a good life which you end the book on you talk about wizards and prophets you said that you were into sci-fi and futuristic stuff maybe tell us a little bit about that yes uh, i mean so the book ends with with climate change and the climate emergency and innovation and and how that is you know in my view the and loads of people's view the big challenge in front of us and i talk about this distinction that is not mine at all but it comes from a sci- american science journalist called charles mann who talks who talks about how almost all conversations around innovation and the environment for decades i mean not just the climate change debate but but almost everything in that field ends up becoming this not very productive duel between what he calls wizards and prophets. So those are two archetypes, I guess, with different views on, on innovation. So you have, so the wizards, that would be somebody like Elon Musk, or I guess Boris Johnson, for example, you know, people who are very, they see innovation and technology as the solution to, for example, climate change. Nature has always been out to kill us historically, and we've always managed to invent some form of technology to prevent that. Wrestle it to the ground. Wrestle it to the ground, you know, come up with something big, right? Innovation is the solution. So that's what they believe. Um, And then on the other end, you have the prophets who take the complete opposite view, right? So, you know, if we, technology and innovation is what's 
that is how we are wrecking the planet. We are so how can more technology and innovation be the solution to climate change if that's what's causing climate change? It doesn't make sense. The solution is is behavioral change. We need to live differently, live smaller. Um, you know, not consume less, um, you know, degrowth, you know, all of these things, right? So, and, and I guess most people recognize this debate, you know, the wizard and the prophet shouting at each other, one saying, you know, innovation and technology, the other one saying behavioral change or live differently. And and it just doesn't really take us forward because uh, I think most people realize that it's probably, is always a bit of both. I mean, to bring it back, like examples I have in my book, like the rolling suitcase, you know, why was that the innovation of it, of it or was it behavioral change that people suddenly started traveling differently or that, um, you know, our concept of masculinity changed? Like what really enabled that change? It was it's almost always a little bit of both when it comes to sustainability. Oh, people actually start eating less meat because they know that that. Uh, that is is good for their CO2 footprint. And then suddenly you have demand for new products, new type of food products, and you might have some kind of innovation there. So these things always sort of almost always work in tandem in all sorts of complex ways. And the wizard shouting at the prophet doesn't, doesn't really take us forward. So in the end of the book, I introduced a, a, a different archetype, which I, I, you know, it's the witch. Uh, and I talk about, because the whole book is about how things we code as feminine are taken less seriously and are seen as inferior. And probably the biggest thing that we've coded as feminine is, is nature, right? And there's this view that technology is this masculine force that has to control and uh, wrestle nature to the ground in a way. Um, and both the prophet and the wizard, they are stuck in this way of looking at the world, I argue, because they see technology as something different than nature. Uh, and, and these two things as two separate things. And so I introduced the witch who is different from the wizard. You know, she does, she doesn't do her magic from a, from a big tower. Uh, she's down in nature, in the forest, getting her magical powers, her innovation and her technology through that kind of communion with nature and ritual and and that is I think an interesting way of trying to to move beyond the wizard and the prophet by sort of saying you know it's not either or but it's we really do need a different relationship between technology and nature so it's not more technology as the wizard is saying or less technology like the prophet is saying but it's a different different way of thinking about it and I think writing women back into the story of innovation and technology is a very useful way to start that project. And on that fantastic final point, thank you so much, Catherine, for coming on the show. Thank you. This is Africa.